0: Good evening, I invite you to share in reading of the scripture with me this evening. There are Bibles in front of you under the chairs and uh, you're welcome to turn to page 553 in the Pew Bible and that's where our scripture for this evening is, Colossians 1, 21 to 23. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death To present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let me pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are the ultimate, the first thing, the only thing that's worthy of our praise. Lord, we acknowledge, as we sang about, and what we see in the scripture preceding the one we're looking at tonight, the supremacy of Christ, that there is no other name higher than the name of Jesus. Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would indeed use this time to bring yourself honor and glory, that you would take the uh, meager offering that I bring and turn it into something that makes sense, that touches our hearts and our minds, and causes us to take one step in the right direction as disciples and followers of you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm really glad that there's people sitting in the second rows, third rows, first rows, because I was going to take the stand right down there if everybody was sitting in the back, and I don't have to do that, which is is good. Turn this clicker on. The sermon this week, I'm going to try to preach a little bit differently. I've spoke, I don't know, maybe a dozen times in my life, all of them here, I believe, and it's a holiday weekend, there's not that many of us here. I think we can be a little, maybe less formal, a little more casual. My wife tells me when I preach, I spend too much time teaching, I'm too academic, I let none of my personality come through. Um, maybe wouldn't, I don't know if she used those words, but that's what I heard anyway. I do think I tend to teach more than I preach and I probably don't look like I'm having fun. But I do enjoy the preparation, I enjoy going through the process probably enjoy it more than you guys enjoy listening to me. So I'm going to try to make it look like I'm enjoying myself, for starters. Um, Number two, I normally follow a really strict uh, kind of outline. You know, I've I've taken several seminary classes, but I don't have a degree. I've taken one weekend-long preaching class. I have a few books. So I I try not to stray too far from that formula, because, you know, A plus B equals C every time, and it's going to work. And I feel like, you know, sermons are supposed to be that way. But not this week. This week, there's, there's no formula being followed, so we'll see how it goes. As an aside, today is a special day in our family, it happens to be my wife's birthday and our anniversary, so if you have a chance afterwards, you can congratulate her on being alive and um, congratulate her for putting up with me for well over half her life now, actually. So I am generally an outgoing person. I'm fairly gregarious. I, like to talk. I sometimes talk too much. I'm sure all of you have noticed that. I will go to parties where I know very few people there. I'll engage in conversation. It's not stressful for me. I don't mind that. But there is something I don't like. I don't like it when somebody says, tell me about yourself. Anybody else like that or not like that? This is going to be a little bit interactive, you know, a little bit like uh, Bernie style. (laughs) There's There's nothing good about... Tell me about yourself. You don't even know where to start. Um, I had that experience recently with Stephanie. We went out to uh, Moody Bible Institute, where Stephanie's been accepted, and we had a tour. And we're in this little room with a student guide. He's probably 21 years old. And he sits down across the table from me and folds his hands and says, well, tell me about yourself. I wasn't ready for that. I was pretty intimidated, actually. I... Don't even remember what I said. I'm sure it was pointless drivel, such as being born and raised in Massachusetts and having six kids or something like that. I don't. I don't even remember what I said. Probably told him I was an engineer. It's. Uh, it's a little scary. And do I even know who I am if I can't answer that question? That's, really what I want to know. What is my next slide? I wonder. That's what I want to know. Um, I'm going to give you my big idea right up front. I'm not going to keep it a secret till the end. The death of, death of Jesus changes who you are. If you remember, if you were here, I preached on the Saturday before Easter. And the title of my sermon was Living Life After the Death of Jesus. And my big idea was that Jesus' death should change the way we live. And so my big idea in this sermon is that the death of Jesus changes who we are. It's a little bit of a sequel to that sermon, if you will. Well, one of the things that you can learn about me, let a little bit more of my personality come through in this sermon, not just that I don't mind talking and that I hate being asked to tell you about myself without any framework for that, is that I really like Seinfeld. It's a great show. Does anybody in the room like Seinfeld? Please, I hope. Okay, that's a great number of hands. I like that. So I'm going to show a few clips, and um, I was afraid that the Elder's Box would be full of complaints and letters. Not letting this guy preach again. So Seinfeld is filled with great characters. Probably even if you don't know the show well, you're familiar with the four main characters. But I'm not talking about the four main characters. Even the smallest of characters have great personalities in that show. Almost caricatures of themselves. And when I was preparing this sermon about who are you, I immediately thought of this one character. His name is Sid. Sid it's kind of philosophical in the way he talks. He talks in, almost in riddles a little bit. And apparently, we learn in the show, that he parks cars for a living. I don't know really what kind of a job that is, but maybe in New York City they have people moving cars around. Well, Sid decides to go on vacation, and he needs somebody to move cars from one side of the street to the other. And George, typically unemployed like always, says, I'll, I'll do that. So he gets all the keys to the cars, and sure enough, while Sid's gone, George completely screws it up. So he sits him down on the couch and he says, I'm going to read it so I don't get it wrong. Probably wouldn't anyway. He said, Moving cars from one side of the street doesn't take any more sense than putting on a pair of pants. If you can put on a pair of pants, you can move cars from one side of the street to the other. And he looks at George and he says, So I have one question for you. Who puts on your pants? George responds that he puts on his own pants, and Sid says, I don't believe you. And he appears in one more episode after that, only one, and it's, it's called The Parking Space. Well, George is backing into a parallel spot, and as he's doing it, he took a little while to line it up and everything. Kramer's friend Mike Moffat comes flying in from the front, headfirst into a parallel parking space, both cars stuck in the space. What do you do now? So they get out of the cars, they're arguing about whose space it is, and Sid comes over. Mike has no idea who Sid is, and this is their interaction.
0: Mind. Do you mind? mind? Do you? Hey, somebody better move these cars. You're making a commotion. Hey, Sid. who are you? Never mind who I am. I know who I am. Do you know who are? Quiet.: Do, Do you mind? Do you?
1: Apparently, it'll play in a loop if I don't hit the next button. So, if you caught that, he comes over to Sid, or Mike says to Sid, who are you? And he says, don't worry about who I am. I know who I am. Do you know who you are? And so that's my question. Do you know who you are? Sid apparently knows who he is. I'm not 100% sure all the time I know who I am. And the only thing worse than being asked to tell, you about, tell someone about yourself is when that happens not one on one, but in a group setting. Has anyone been in a group setting where you're sitting in a circle and they say, We're going to go around the room and we're each going to tell something about ourselves? Mary, everybody, right? It is the worst. What generally happens in that situation? Anybody? Nobody wants to guess? Awkward and, boring. Awkward and boring things. What I always remember is the first person that goes, everybody else just follows what they said. Right? If the first person tells you where they're from and what their favorite dessert is, so does everybody else, generally. It's, it's terrible. I've never been happy with my answers in those settings, except for one time. I was in a corporate setting, and we had... Same thing. Oh, we're going to go around the room and tell us about ourselves. Well, the first person started with the normal drivel that is boring and awkward. And the next five people followed suit, as they normally would. But then something crazy happened. The sixth person broke the mold. I guess he'd be the seventh person at that point. Broke the mold. He started talking about his childhood like he was laying on a couch in a therapist's office. (laughs) It was amazing. And he obviously had really this strong identity in what he felt was his rag-to-riches story, rags-to-riches story. He was the vice president where I worked. He had, you know, he had made it by every sense of the, the word, but he had grown up poor, according to him. He said that he ate chili and American chop suey for dinner. He packed saltines for a snack at school, and they weren't even name-brand. He wore hand-me-down clothes, and he went on and on. Well, I had the good fortune of going next. And you know this story? Oh. So I, I kind of did my best job to get really sad. And I said, you guys are all going to have to give me a few minutes. I just found out I grew up poor. And everybody laughed. At this guy's expense, So it wasn't my most gracious moment. But it was the first time I was ever satisfied with my answer, going around in a circle, telling somebody about myself. And I told them nothing about myself. I didn't follow the first six people. I didn't follow that guy. It was great. It moved on to the next person after a good laugh, and nobody ever asked me where I was from or how many kids I had or where I went to college or any of that stuff. It was amazing. Identity is an interesting thing, I think. How do you define yourself? What defines you? What is your identity? What gives you your identity? Do you know who you are? Well, I've noticed Facebook allows people these days to write something underneath their name, and people use it as a way to describe themselves, to give themselves some identity beyond their name. Um, I've read a lot of them this week. I've read many of the ones in this room, if you have one. Some of them are great. Some of them are very thoughtful. Some of them are funny. (coughs) Excuse me. Some of them are very serious. Um, But it's interesting to see how people choose to identify themselves when they have maybe 50 characters to do so. I think it's really common when I look through those to see people say that they are um, a wife, a mother, um, you know. A lot of people, if they're Christians, put on there that they're a follower of Christ or uh, a man of faith or something like that. That's great. It tells somebody a little bit about yourself. Um... Forget for a minute how we define ourselves. How do we find, define the people around us? When somebody asks you about somebody, how do you define them? How do you describe somebody to somebody else? <clears throat> I knew I was going to need some water to get through this. I could feel it. If you look on Facebook for how we describe other people, I don't think the story is very good. And if you look on Twitter, it's even worse. I'm not on Instagram or Snapchat, so I'm not sure what's going on there. But I'm guessing it's not tremendously much better. So how do we define ourselves? How do we define other people? I think sometimes the best we can do is figure out what we don't want to be. And I'm going to throw in another gratuitous Seinfeld clip.
0: I oh, guess things change for I went the scientist. wrong
1: one. I am off. My place. I have to go to clip three for that. We're out of order. Oh no. I'm just gonna go right to it. Cause that'll this be easier. This
0: pirate trend that she's come up with, Jerry, this, this is gonna be the new look for the nineties. You're gonna be the first pirate. But I don't wanna be a pirate. You look like a cowboy, huh? I don't wanna be a cowboy. Yes, yes, you're like Switzerland. I don't wanna be Switzerland. This pirate. All right, so we
1: see Jerry is pretty clear on some of the things he doesn't want to be. I'm not 100% sure after watching 100 plus episodes of that show exactly what he does want to be. He seems pretty noncommittal about most things other than telling jokes. And I think sometimes for us it's the same. We know what we don't want to be, but sometimes we have trouble grabbing on to what we actually want to be in life, what we want to be known for, what we want our identity to be. So, what are some of the ways we identify ourselves? Come on, throw it out there. What are some of the ways we identify ourselves? Jobs. Jobs, yes. Absolutely, that's a great one. What is our occupation? It could be a stay-at-home mother, a doctor, a lawyer, an electrician, maybe a pastor, an author, an engineer, a carpenter, an accountant, a roofer. And these last two, a comedian, Or a cashier. Lead into this clip.
0: I guess things changed for me on Tuesday night. Tuesday night? What happened Tuesday night? I saw your act. (laughs) (laughs) My act? What what does that have to do with anything? Well, to be honest, it just didn't make it for me. It's just so much fluff. I
1: can't believe
0: it's so... So what are you saying? You didn't like my act? So that's it? I can't be with someone if I don't respect what they do. You're a cashier!
1: (laughs) So how true is that? I mean, we we divide ourselves oftentimes by what we do, and we have a certain level of respect or not for other occupations. I think... I'm not going to go too deeply into it, but we've seen it, white collar versus blue collar or um, whatever the case may be, you know, master's degree versus didn't go to college. We define ourselves that way. What are some of the other ways we define ourselves? Yeah. Family, yep, absolutely. How many kids we have, whether we're married or not, family. Family. What are some of the other ways we define ourselves sports teams. Geography. yes i have those geography sports teams and what'd you say talents and, abilities. talents and abilities right so we do we define ourselves by our gender our ethnicity our geography whether we're male or female black or white asian chinese ethiopian a new englander a bostonian a midwesterner i can tell you when i'm in haiti and somebody asks me where i'm from i say boston No, I don't live in Boston, but they've heard of it. They've heard of Boston, New York, and Miami mostly a lot of times. Sometimes I'm there and there's somebody that's actually from Boston. They never miss an opportunity. You're not from Boston. Yes, you're right, 25, 26 miles, you know, northwest. Thanks for correcting me because it's very important to the person I was talking to. Um, But it's important to that person, right? They're from Boston. I can't be stealing their identity. How many times has Jonathan told us during a sermon that he's from Colorado? Estes Park. I think he takes some pride in that, and hopefully not improperly so. Um, What's the first question that people ask at a party when they don't know each other? Especially men. What do you do? I heard Diane say it. Yeah, what do you do? Jobs again. Um, Social status. We talked about that. Rich, poor, smart, athletic, attractive, creative, musical, tall, short. Skinny, married, fat, single, young, old. Our hobbies. Hiking, biking, woodworking, reading, knitting, running, writing, CrossFit. When we know someone a little better, what topics do we move on to that define us and often divide us? Politics is a big one, right? Republican, Democrat, progressive, liberal, conservative. I see those all over Facebook. And what's another one that you might talk about when you get to know people a little better? Religion. Religion can divide us terribly. Methodist, Lutheran, congregational, Pentecostal, charismatic, Calvinist. I mean, we could go on and on and on. There's so many titles and identities we want to take that may or may not be important to be our primary identity. In Acts chapter 9... I think there's probably the only story I know in the Bible that talks about, specifically, somebody asking, who are you? This is kind of an interesting story. I made it through a lot of my life without hearing this story, so any kids that are still in here, you're going to jump on life if you haven't heard this story. Chapter 9, verses 13 to 16, it says, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. So Sceva was a chief priest, and seven of his sons were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them. said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Talk about awkward. That is like the worst ever recorded case of somebody asking, who are you? They obviously didn't have a good answer. They didn't have the right identity to be trying to drive out that evil spirit. So a few weeks ago, as I said, I preached a sermon on the big idea that the death of Jesus should change the way we live. And now tonight... The big idea that the death of Jesus changes who we are. So let's read the sermon passage once again. One of the benefits of it being short is that we can read it multiple times. It says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you as holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So, this is not the only place that this message is preached or written by Paul. This is a really common theme in Scripture. You were alienated, you were dead, and now through Christ's death you've been made alive. We see this in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. We see this in Romans 6. We actually see it in all of chapters probably 6 through 11 of Romans. Even the whole book of Romans is really can be summed up by you are dead in your sin and now you're alive in Christ. But it's not just Paul. I know there's some people that say, well, don't tell me just what Paul said. Did Jesus talk about it? Jesus did. John 15, 1 through 6, I think, has the same message. I am the vine. He says, "My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it'll be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself; it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, then you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing." If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. So I think we've established that this is not a minor point in Scripture. Matter of fact, Paul says at the end of it, This is the gospel. So this is really a simple explanation. When somebody asks you, Can you explain the gospel? This is a great place to look. Paul says, This is the gospel. It's the good news, and it really is good news to be dead once and then to be made alive again. Let's dive into our passage a little bit more precisely, verse by verse. Verse 21 says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. So who are we without Christ? Paul is writing to Christians In the church, in Colossae, and in verse 21, he tells them, and I think by extension, us, about our condition and identity without Christ, or before we knew Christ. Because of our sin, without Christ, we are alienated from God. Alienated from God means separated. Alienated isn't probably a word we use a lot, um, but when people talk about being alienated from family members, it means that there's some kind of disagreement. They don't talk anymore. They don't see each other. So our sin keeps us from being able to talk with God, to be in his presence. We need a solution for that. So because of our sin, we're separated, we're alienated from God. And it says that we're enemies with God. It takes it a step further. As I talked about Easter weekend, sin can be defined as rebellion towards God. And God cannot be in the presence of sin. So sin then is what separates us. And apart from God... Who of us can live? So it really isn't as complicated as it might seem. Look at what happened with Adam and Eve. Before the fall, we see evidence that they were communing in the garden with God. After the fall, they're banished from the garden. They're separated. Without Christ, the Bible says that we're lost. It says that we're without hope. As Jesus said in John 15, Apart from him, we can do nothing. So, let's get some better news. And the better news is in verse 22. In verse 22, it says, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. In Christ, we are made holy. That's the first thing it says. That's a big word. One that we don't use a lot outside of God. And there's good reason for that, because the Bible tells us that God alone is holy. But I think we make it to be maybe a little bit more mystical than it is when it talks about us being made holy. In First Peter chapter 1, verse 16, there's familiar words because they're quoted from Levitic- uh, Leviticus where they appear three times. Be holy, because I am holy. This is really common. Every Christian has probably heard those words. Even a lot of non-Christians have probably heard those words. And I think for me growing up, I always heard those words, be holy, because I am holy. And I thought, how can I do that? You know, this, is, this seems very works-based. I'm going to do my best to be holy, but I know I'm going to fail. It sounds like a command, be holy, be holy. But... I actually learned in the last year or two that our translation of this, it's accurate, but it's probably not great for us because when we hear be something in English, at least in our culture, we immediately think somebody is telling us to do something, that this is something we need to do. And I don't think when you look back at the the Greek and the Hebrew that that's really the way the original audience would have understand what was being said either in Leviticus when they were reading that or when they were reading 1 Peter because what it really means is that you are holy I've been reading the Lexham English Bible a lot because it's a, it's a translation that tries to be very literal it's not a great translation for just reading straight through but it can really be helpful and it translates the Old Testament occurrences not as be holy because I am holy but you shall be holy because I am holy doesn't fully clear it up but you can see a little bit of what is going on there it's really talking about almost a future tense in that sense and then in 1st peter it really kind of takes that future tense and the lexham english bible says you will be holy because I am holy in order to dwell with god to be in his presence we need to be holy you can't be unholy and be in god's presence I want to make sure you understand what I think I understand now, although not fully, is that it's not our trying harder that makes us holy. It is Jesus and his blood that makes us holy. It's God saying, you are holy, that makes us holy. It's his decision to look on Jesus and not us that makes us holy. It also says that we're without blemish. I think we know what that means, but you know, for me, I love cars. And when a car gets a blemish, it loses its, it's a lot of its value. People don't want a car with a big dent on the hood or a big scratch down the side that somebody ran their key along. It's, the car loses a lot of value. You can't sell it. It can drive just fine. But somehow it loses a lot of its value because it's blemished. Well, we're blemished. Sin blemishes us. But God, he sees us without blemish. He sees us as he sees Christ. And lastly, free from accusation. I think this is a huge one. Um, Anybody ever heard that a nickname for Satan is the, the accuser or the great accuser? It actually says in Revelation 12, 10 and 11, one of the places this name comes from. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. So this is showing us that Satan is constantly accusing us before God. He's, but he doesn't stop there. He actually accuses us to us. I think we like to believe the accusations of Satan the people around us. Do you ever hear inside your head that God can't love you because you did whatever, fill in the blank? You can't can't be acceptable to God because of thoughts that you had or because of things that you did in the past. You've made too many mistakes. You're not good enough. Don't go to church. You're just going to cause problems. I don't think that's the message that jesus wants us to take the bible talks a lot about being set free and honestly like we sing a song on the worship team that says it is for freedom you have been set free it's a it's a quote from scripture it's it's not wrong but i sometimes have trouble understanding it the bible talks a lot about being set free and i know we're we're free from the bondage of sin but not really i still sin so i'm not free I think this passage helps me more than almost any other understand what freedom I have. I'm free from accusation. I don't have to listen to the accusations of Satan. God doesn't listen to them because he, he looks at me, he sees Christ. So how can I work Can I train my mind to not let my identity be shaped by what Satan says about me? Well, one of the other things you can learn about me in this sermon is I try to let you guys have a, see a little bit more of my personality. I love listening to Christian music. It's probably one of the reasons why I volunteer as the worship leader because I I really enjoy it. And I think there's huge benefit at least for me. I think there might be benefit for you and probably some of you do this. Um, And I didn't understand it when I was 18 as much as I do today. Um, And I listen to almost entirely Christian music not because I'm telling you that secular music is, is sinful. I loved classic rock growing up. I still know the songs. Um but it's not as beneficial. When we fill our minds over and over with the truth of Scripture being sung, and there's something about songs, you remember them. I can remember the words to a song so much easier than I can remember a Bible verse. Memorized a Bible verse three years ago, do I remember it now? Maybe, with some help, maybe not. But a song I heard 20 years ago, if it comes on, I can sing along with it. I can recall it when something comes to mind. My kids will tell you, my wife will tell you. I sing nonstop at home sometimes, they, I make up my own songs too, but a lot of times they're real songs that they've never heard, and they don't believe me. But I believe that Christian music is really powerful in that, and I actually have three more clips I'm gonna play, and they're not Seinfeld clips, they're portions of uh, music videos. Two of them have lyrics so that you can read along, the other one I couldn't get a lyric video, couldn't find one. Uh, I'm not gonna play the whole song, each clip is gonna be a minute or two. I don't know if you know these songs, if you don't, That's great. I'm really happy to introduce you to the songs. If you do, I hope you like them. Um, But when Satan is accusing us of these things, there are lots of ways that we can encourage ourselves. And one of the ways would be this song.
0: mistakes you are more than the problems you create you've been remade if you don't like
1: that song there's lots of others with a similar message that you could fill your mind with that will encourage you that's 10th avenue north if you want to look it up later so if i was going to make this sermon easy i'd be done right now and i would have skipped verse 23 But the part of me that says sermons do need to have some organization and you can't just leave out parts of Scripture said I shouldn't do that. So even though I was saying I wasn't going to have any rules, I do have that rule. So this one says, picking up in verse 23, if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been preached to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. That completes the sentence in verse 22. Verse 22 was the good news that told us that we have been reconciled with Christ, or by Christ's physical body, through death, to present you as holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm. So what am I saying? Am I saying that we have to do something? That we have a role in this? That you can lose your salvation? Well, I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation. I don't think that's what this verse is saying. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. The Bible, in a lot of places, gives us ways to discern Christians from non-Christians, to discern Paul from the seven sons of Sceva. There are ways that we can do that. We get the fruit of the Spirit. That's supposed to be a sign to us. Jesus says, they'll know your disciples, if, my disciples, by your love, or in another place, if you love one another. So I think Paul's saying is that if your identity is in Christ, if you're really rooted in Him, then you're going to continue in your faith. That you're gonna be firm, and that you're gonna hold on to the hope. So that is our role, right? We're supposed to continue in our faith. Paul tells us elsewhere in scripture to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So there is something for us to do in that sense. There's a tension in scripture. saying, I believe salvation is by faith alone, and even the continuance of our faith. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the author of our faith and the finisher of our faith. So I'm not here saying that we can boast about it or that there's something that we're doing to earn our salvation, but yet in the mystery of Scripture, there is both. James says, faith without works is dead. Jesus separates the sheep and the goats by who handed out water and food and visited people in prison. So there is something that goes together. It's not your works. It's not your working harder to be holy that gets you into heaven, that gets your salvation. But it's an outpouring of your faith. It's a natural occurrence. It's how you know that someone has a true faith. It continues. They have fruit. They love. Paul also says in verse 23 that this is the gospel. He says this is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed. This is the good news. And if this is the way we present the gospel to those around us, I think it really is good news. You were dead. You can be alive in Christ. Maybe we don't want to say dead. That might throw them off a little bit. But it truly is good news when it's presented this way. We can share the gospel with those around us. We can share the gospel with our friends at school, with our co-workers, by encouraging them to trade their identity in things that are temporary, things that don't matter, things that are fleeting for an identity in Christ that can't be taken from them. See, the death of Jesus changes who we are. So what is our identity? Let's go back to the very beginning of the sermon when I talked about where we find our identity. When I read the blurbs on Facebook, when I talked with people, when I listened to discussions, when I read bumper stickers, when I observed how people act, I can see what's important to people. You can do it too. You do it all the time, I'm sure. Dan Casey preached a great sermon on identity at my mom's funeral. I didn't know what his topic would be, and it was less less than a week from this sermon, so I wasn't changing mine. So some of this may be repetitive for those of you who are there. But some people have the bulk of their identity in their career, some in their family, some in their athletic ability, some in their good looks, some in politics, some in many things I haven't mentioned. But what happens to those people when they lose their job, lose their family, grow old, and are no longer athletic or beautiful? When their candidate loses the next election, they're lost. They don't know who they are. I think in the American brand of Christianity, we put a lot of emphasis on family, and family is good, but family is not God. It's a gift from God. You know a week and a half ago my mom passed away. You might not know that one week ago today, Kerry and Stephanie and Anna were in a car accident that they couldn't have avoided, that totaled Kerry's car. Some or all of them could have been killed. Quite easily, if the circumstances were just slightly different. Most of you, I'm sure, don't know that just a few days after that, just a few days ago, uh, Mubashir was hit by a car while riding his bike home from the cemetery, putting flowers on his grandmother's grave. If a car was traveling east on King Street at that moment, Mubashir's accident would have ended up completely differently. For our identity is in Christ, we're free to live knowing that we are a beloved child of the King. The king of the universe. And nothing we can do can change that if our identity is rooted in Christ. The mistakes we make and we will make them. The sins we commit and we will commit them. They're not going to keep God from looking at us and seeing Christ. I think the hardest thing is believing it. We are not defined by our actions but his. We are holy because he says we are. We are without blemish because he says we are. We are free of accusation because he says we are. Stephen Curtis Chapman has been one of my favorite singers and even more so songwriters since probably the late 80s. Um, and we're going to listen to a short clip from one of his recent praise albums. was over but we're running out of time one thing you can learn about me is that when I go off script I'm going to go long I'll remember that next time so I think if we listen to songs like that while we're cleaning the house, while we're driving to work maybe it'll help us sink it in that our identity as sons and daughters that the fact that we're holy that it'll sink in Hallelujah, we are who you say we are. Do you believe that you are who God says you are? I think that's the hardest part of this whole sermon, is believing it. We read it. We know it. We can say it. We can tell somebody else, but can we believe it? I'm going to play one more clip. This one's from Lauren Daigle, so it might get our our younger demographic. Um, I just love her voice. I've loved it since the first time I heard it. Didn't think she was going to look like what she looked like after listening to her voice. But she's got a song that is on the same topic.
0: I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough.
1: It's another great song to put on repeat when you're feeling Satan's accusations. That you're not good enough and you want to reinforce your identity and embrace who God says you are. Had to get to that second verse where she actually said that he's her identity. So, in closing, please don't think that I think I'm better than any of you at this, but I want to encourage us to Think about what people would conclude about our identity based on our conversations, our Facebook posts, our bumper stickers, how we spend our time, where we spend our money. What would an independent auditor decide your identity is? How can we infuse our lives with conversations, Facebook posts, and other things that will not only tell of our identity in Christ, but point others to him as well? Can we come across as a sinner saved by grace and so thankful for it rather than a Christian who looks down on the world. I have a lot of thoughts on this, if anybody wants to open up discussions another time. Since my sermon on Easter weekend, I started and finished Love Does by Bob Goff. It's 30 amazing chapters of stories that happened because he chose to love and live like Jesus. I recommend the book. I might listen to it again and take some notes this time. And I'm going to close with this quote from a sermon given by George Whitefield. He was preaching, and he said, Father Abraham, whom have you in heaven? And he shouted, any Episcopalians? No, the people roared. Any Presbyterians? As he danced around the stage. No, any independents or seceders? New sides or old sides? Any Methodists? No, 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 the crowd shouted in reply. Whom have you there then, Father Abraham? We don't know those names here. All who are here are Christians, believers in Christ, men who have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. God help me, God help us all to forget having names and to become Christians in deed and truth. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this message and we pray that it was from you and not from me. Lord, I pray that you would help us to find our identity in you, and to find ways to share that with the world in ways that make a difference and turn people on to you and not off. Lord, we pray for the offering it gets taken, that you would take it, that you would use it, that you would multiply it, Lord. And we thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you that when you look on us, you see Jesus. Amen.